0: Our gracious God in heaven, we thank you for the blessing of this Lord's Day. We thank you that it is your day, a day that you have assigned for us rest and worship of you. And we thank you that we, your people, can gather on this Lord's Day, that we can worship you, and that we can look at the doctrines of your church. We thank you for your ordinary means of grace, of words, sacrament, and prayer. And we thank you that today we can look even more deeply how we may grow in our enjoyment of Your Word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so again, just a very brief recap because we have quite a bit to cover today. uh, But last week, uh, we looked at or are moving into how to read God's Word. How to read God's Word. Again, as a refresher, my argument is, is that uh, we will enjoy God's Word by better understanding how to read God's Word. And that sometimes we go frustrated with God's Word because we don't know how to read it. And so we need to, to understand how to read it. And last week we looked at reading in context. We looked at the centrality of Jesus in Scripture. We looked at understanding how to read Scripture and understanding, for example, narrative, the grand narrative of Scripture, the story within the story, the plot line of Scripture. And then we looked at biblical logic. Uh, That is the the, uh, understanding that God presents us with indicatives and imperatives. The imperatives are based on the indicative of the gospel. And the example that we gave last week is Exodus chapter 20, uh, where we find the Ten Commandments. But the Ten Commandments don't begin with the first commandment, do they? They begin with the indicative. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of, redeemed you out of the Egyptian slavery. Then, or therefore... You shall have no other gods before me, so forth and so on. And then we ended last week, which is going to be our beginning this week, on literary character. Literary character. Now, I want to give a preface here, and I hopefully everyone will just exhale when I say this. Uh, so I, I, I uh, am fully aware that... Uh, So I I was an English major, undergrad, double major, English and French. I spent a lot of time in literature. And I love it. And I love literature. I love literature in multiple languages. And therefore, I've got a tendency to really nerd out on this topic. Uh, And you know that. You know me long enough to know that. I, believe it or not, I know that as well. What my intention is, is not to turn you all into uh, literary scholars. Of course, we couldn't do that in a Sunday school class anyway, but that's not my intention at all. Uh, What my intention is in leading us through this study is just to help you better understand what you're reading. Now, of course, the premise is that you are reading, that you are in God's Word consistently, and I hope that you are But secondly, that so many times people will read God's Word and not be able to understand what they're reading because they don't understand the literary character of that portion of Scripture. So that's what we're going to go through. And we're going to go through it this Sunday and next Sunday, Lord willing. And I promise this, my intent is when we finish today's study, that you will see Scripture perhaps differently and it will renew an excitement, an enjoyment of diving into God's Word. My intention is not to bury us down into the details. I am going to introduce some terms that may be new to you. Don't worry about them. This is not so that you can put together some sort of spreadsheet with terms and and definitions and maybe you'll better... No. I just... Just walk with me through what I'm going to teach today and with the purpose being to love God's Word and to be able to read it better. So, with that being said, one of the forms of Scripture that all of you are familiar with and they're oftentimes those portions of Scripture that are the easiest for us to read uh, is narrative. 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 Narrative, if it's helpful for you to understand, is just simply the telling of a story. So you think about it this way. Uh, Genesis is primarily narrative all the way to Esther. Sam and I were talking about Esther just a little while ago, and he was talking about seeing a play that was based on Esther. And one of the things that he complimented the play with was just simply saying it was so close to the story of Scripture. And that's a beautiful thing. Esther is a beautiful thing. But the reason why it can be made into a play very easily is its narrative. We see this in parts of Job but not most of Job, and we see it in parts of Daniel, but not all of Daniel. We know the accounts of, for example, we all know the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We all know the account of uh, Daniel in the lion's den, and and they make uh, for good uh, telling, and they make for great Sunday school lessons for our children as well. And then we get to other parts of Daniel, and we go... Wow, what happened to the story, right? All of a sudden, it becomes poetry and apocalyptic literature, and we're like, wow, something changed. Well, it did. It did change. And what changed is is that it shifted away from narrative, and you're going to want to note that. So I want to give you an example that, that will be very helpful, I think, to all of you of how to read narrative. So if you have your Bibles with you, turn to the book of Ruth. Turn to the book of Ruth. And we're just going to walk through this briefly. Ruth is uh, right after Judges. So Joshua, Judges, Ruth. And I want to look at this and, and help you understand how narrative typically develops literarily. All right, so let's look at the very first verse, which helps us with the setting. The very first verse helps us with the setting, and here's what we read. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Could there be a better descriptive introduction to a book? Isn't that incredible? We now know the period in which it's happening. It's during the period of the judges. There's not yet a king in Israel. We've already read the book of Judges, which precedes Ruth, and so we understand what kind of world that was. We now find out what are the circumstances. Well, the circumstances is there's a famine in the land, and it's so bad that a man takes his wife and family and moves to another country, which was a big no-no for the Israelites, right? You don't want to go over and live in the land of those Moabites. But the famine was so bad, he had to, and so he went. Or at least that's the presumption. All of this, we learn. We learn that he's a man of Bethlehem. We learn, and this very first sentence is going to be very important to understanding the conclusion of the book, the last verse of the book. He's also of the tribe of Judah. Ding, 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 ding. That's an important part. All of this we understand then in the setting of this narrative. What's the situation? That's the second thing we're going to look for in a narrative. What's the situation? Verse 2. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. So that is the situation. They have left Israel. They have gone into the land of of Moabites. We now know who the characters are, at least preliminarily. And so the third thing that we're going to be looking for is the problem. And for some of you who have studied literature, you know there are other terms for these. Uh, I'm keeping this fairly basic. But we have now the setting. We have the situation. Now we have the problem. Now look at verses 3, 4, and 5 with me. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. And in ancient civilization, that's a big problem. She has no rights. She has no wealth. She has nothing but two daughter-in-laws, and neither one of them are Israelites. Wow, that's a problem. See the brilliance of this narrative. Within the first five verses, we have the setting, we have the situation, we have the problem. Okay, so what is the author then going to do? The author is then going to develop the problem, elaborating, we get a lot more information, don't we? Until there is a turning point. And you're going to to see this repetitively in scriptural narratives. Look at at verse 16. Verse 16 says, But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. There will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death departs me, whether death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Wow, what a turning point! A woman who is hopeless, without a husband, without her sons to provide for her, she is. Without hope in a foreign land, and yet she sees but a glimmer. She sees a turning point, and there are a number of things, and I'm not preaching this text today, but there are a number of things that you would want to note here in just these three verses, one of which is this Moabite woman fears Yahweh, believes that Yahweh will deal with her if she is not faithful, and she has seen something. She has seen something in Naomi that she loves. And of course, we're, we're going to see this played out, uh, aren't we, in, in the rest of the narrative. But then we see from this turning point, we see resolution. Now, before I point you to the verses, let me say this. So, in good narrative, the resolution's not the end of the story. I know, That's somehow times how we think, but there is going to be a repetition here. So, the first resolution look at verse 19 of that very first chapter. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? Who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Now, now Ruth is really easy. to to lay this out for you because it is brilliantly written. Uh, The author of Ruth is masterful in laying out little bitty pieces of information along in this narrative, such as the barley harvest. You students of the Bible know where this barley harvest is going, right? And the introduction of Boaz and so forth. But we're not there yet. Right now, we're just at resolution. So we've ended the first chapter, and here's the way the narrative has played out. We know the setting. We know the situation. We've seen the problem. Oh my goodness, it is a problem. But we see a turning point and then we see the resolution and, you good students of Bible literature, what happens then with the resolution? The resolution then becomes the new setting. So now, it's now Naomi and Ruth. They're now in Bethlehem. It's now barley harvest and Naomi believes that God has forsaken her. That's the new setting. Now, I'm not going to walk you through uh, the rest of of Ruth. Maybe we should. Wouldn't that be fun? Uh, But I'm not going to do that today. But I can tell you that you're going to move, when you're reading Ruth, you're going to move from that new setting to a new problem, to a new turning point, to a new resolution. The resolution in chapter 4, if you're taking notes, the resolution then in chapter 4 becomes the new setting. And we repeat, setting, problem, turning point, resolution. And the resolution, in the end, and I'm just going to assume that I am not running this for anybody. I'm assuming everybody's read Ruth. And if you haven't, we need to talk, right? I'm assuming you've read Ruth. What happens? Well, Ruth marries Boaz, who owned the barley field, which is how they met and how he provided in that redeeming way. And even though there was a problem introduced of another relative, Boaz became the Redeemer. And he marries Ruth, and they have a child, and the child is named... huh? Yeah, Obed, then Jesse. Jesse's the father of... David. And so right in the little bitty book of of Ruth, we see the gospel. We see a picture of redemption pointing to the greater Redeemer. And that incidentally, to go back to last week's comment on seeing the centrality, you don't have to read Ruth and look for all sorts of codes of Jesus in it and all sorts of, you know, well, the barley fields, a picture of Jesus. And no, no, you don't have to do any of that. That's silly. What you do is you just let the literature stand on its own. It's divine. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. And at the end, then you see the gospel, don't you? You see, aha, this book of Ruth is pointing to a greater Redeemer. And the greater Redeemer is Christ. And I get to see within this little book of Ruth a picture of how God works redemptively. (sighs) That's beautiful. Well, that's narrative. And that's how... We study narrative. And to go back to last week, think about this with me. The grand narrative, remember that word from last week? Actually, if, you, if you've got your, your handout, you can look back to the review of last week. I said there are three things that you're looking for throughout the totality of Scripture. Grand narrative, the story within the story, and the plot line, right? So the grand narrative here we see is what? Covenant faithfulness. It's one of the reasons why we see Lord, the English translation of the word Yahweh, God's name that He gave to His covenant people. And we see here the covenant faithfulness. Even though there was famine, even though they went to, to Moab, even though it seemed like all hope was lost and she wanted to change her name to Mara, all of this, we see the covenant faithfulness of God. That's the grand narrative. So what's the big picture? Well, one could be One of the big pictures would be God's faithfulness to the Abrahamic covenant. Did God not say to Abraham that the nations, I will bless the nations through you, even a Moabite woman who married into a family of Judah? Wow. And what is the plot line? Well, one of the plot lines, and I think it's the most obvious here, is the family tree of David. I mean, you, you start picking up on that in chapter 1 at the very beginning. When you start getting all of these hints, it's almost as, as if the, the, the writer of Ruth is like, I'm just going to drop some bread clump, crumbs for him along the way. Hint, hint, tribe of Judah. And we get all the way to the end, and then we get to the first chapter of Matthew, and we go, wow, I see it. This is This is it. But I think the plot line of Ruth is, in fact, the family tree of David. So... That's narrative. And you're going to read it as you're reading through your Bibles. And I just simply want to encourage you to be looking for these branches. Be looking for these different aspects of the literature. They'll help you better understand and they'll also help you better appreciate it. Not nearly as easy as narrative is poetry. Is poetry. And specifically, for most of our Bibles, Hebrew poetry, which is very different than uh, English poetry. Now, I want to pause here for just a second, and and this is not your notes, this is just a a side note. Um, Some people will get frustrated with biblical poetry uh, in that, there is a a lacking, especially literalists. Like if if you're a former uh, dispensationalist, for example, Hebrew poetry is just like a kick in the face. It's really, really difficult for a literalist. And uh, one of the things that you have to understand is, A, sometimes it does get lost in translation. It is remarkably remarkably, and I'm not a Hebrew scholar, I'm an elementary Hebrew student, but trust me on this, the people that I trust, going from Hebrew to English is difficult. Going from Hebrew poetry to English is almost impossible. I mean, it is very difficult. So what will happen is when you're going through he, from Hebrew, we will not pick up on words that play against each other will not pick up on sounds that make similar sounds. And so what the translators in English will do is they will take what the writer in Hebrew is attempting to do, which would, would seem somewhat obvious if you are one who reads Hebrew, and try to carry that into an English setting. So it's why if you ever see a passage in Hebrew and then you see the English translation in poetry, there's always way, way more words. And the literalist will go, well, that's not a literal translation. Well, that's impossible. You can't do a Hebrew poetic literal translation. It won't ever work because you'll have to start making words up and sounds and all of a sudden it could get really weird. What happens is a really good translator and especially a really good poet in English... Will take the concept and translate that concept to us, and I'll tell you, one of the the, the uh, uh, teachers of poetry, uh, biblical po- poetry that I admire the most has said, and so this makes, and and he's actually a, a, a Roman Catholic, so beware, right? But but he says one of the greatest translations from uh, in Hebrew poetry to English is the Scottish Psalter. He refers to our Scottish Psalter as genius. See, and we already knew that. We knew Presbyterians were genius. But we now have a Roman Catholic on record who, who, who said it. Uh, but no, so that's a good example. If you're looking for a good example of Hebrew poetry translated into uh, uh, capturing sort of the essence of that in English... Look at the Scottish Psalter. A number of the psalms that we sing on Sunday morning are derivations of the Scottish Psalter. So enjoy that. Uh, So you say, okay, so what about my English Bible? All right. Well, it oftentimes will carry the same idea. Now, it, it may not rhyme. Uh, poetry in Hebrew didn't rhyme. But our English ears, we, we like things that rhyme. So that's why the Psalter is so brilliant. But in a translation, for example, the ESV that we have, you're still going to be looking at concepts that the translator is using to help carry the idea of that poetry. All right, so that's enough of an introduction. I want to introduce a couple of things to you. First of all, in poetry. <clears throat> especially in Hebrew poetry, not as much in, in uh, English poetry, but in Hebrew poetry, you're going to be looking at parallelism. Parallelism. And for many of you who are in the Proverbs class that was before this, when I walked through the Proverbs, you're already familiar with this because the Proverbs are most often in the majority, parallelisms. And some of the things that we looked at uh, in looking through that is we looked at, um, well, let me define it first. Parallelism is the use of two or three lines to describe aspects of the same reality. So it's why in Proverbs we'll read it and, and the literalist gets really confused. Like, well, they're not making any sense. They're conflicting one another. But when you look at the poetry, you go, oh, it's describing this. It's describing this. They seem different, but there are parallels to the same thing. And so I'm supposed to get a truth, a general truism from this. Uh, aspects of parallelism, and I can't remember if I have this on your handout, is Repetition. Repetition. And that is known as synonymous parallelism. Synonymous parallelism, this repetition. And that is where two, line 2 says more or less the same as the line 1, but in different words. So this, this may say word, this may say law. Um, again, we want to avoid literal reading of poetry and, and letting those two play off in synonymous parallelism. Another is synthetic parallelism. Uh, syn-thetic. Synthetic parallelism, I told you you don't need to remember these words, right? Synthetic parallelism is addition. It is adding to. So line one is true. But there's something more than this now expressed in line two. You and I might say that's an elaboration. It's building on what the poet has said, and now it's telling us more. That's synthetic parallelism. And then finally, and this is the one that most of you are familiar with, it is, you may not have known the word, but it is antithetical parallelism. Antithetical parallelism, and that's contrast. And those are the Proverbs that we're able to understand the best. It helps us in reading poetry. Line one is true, but we need to beware of something very different considered in line two. And so the two uh, contrast one another. That's called antithetical parallelism, and that's very common in the Proverbs. So in in, in the English translation of the Hebrew poetry, we're going to be looking for parallelism. The second thing that we're going to look for is poetic language. Poetic language. Poetic language uses, for example, figures of speech to to describe reality. So, for, for those of you that are of a black and white personality and everything is literal and you struggle with the poetic portions of Scripture, you're going to have to kind of like unlearn some of that. And you're going to have to... Get a little more flexible with this because, for example, and I used this I think a couple of weeks ago, but I've actually preached on this passage. When David says in Psalm 22, "Many bulls encompass me; strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening, a ravening and roaring lion." That's poetic language. Do we think that David was in the middle of a cow pasture surrounded by bulls who are opening their mouths at him, who are now all of a sudden transformed into lions? We're not exactly sure how that happened. No. I mean, if you're a reader with a basic understanding of poetic language, you know that's a figure of speech. He's surrounded by probably some big, mean dudes The country of Bashan was known for fertile grazing grounds and healthy animals. And so these are probably big, strapping, mean dudes, right? And they mean him harm. And they're roaring at him. They're angry and they're expressing their anger. And and David is probably scared to death, right? All of this gives us a picture of his situation. But you have to understand the poetic language. Also within Uh, poetry, you're going to be looking for also a turning point. Now this is not always the case, and this is certainly uh, not going to be the case in uh, all of the Proverbs, but you're still going to look for the turning point. And I want to give you an example, uh, because sometimes this is hard to catch. Psalm 102. Turn there with me, because I think it'll be fun for you to see this. Psalm 102. I'm not going to read the whole psalm to you. We're going to look at it quickly. Psalm 102. And it begins this way. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to You. Do not hide Your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline Your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. So, again, there's all sorts of poetic language here. Right? Right from from the beginning... His, his cry, maybe he's literally crying, but, but more than likely he's calling out to God, don't hide your face from me. Well, we know that God is spirit. Well, but here poetically expressed as God having, in the face, having a face. Incline your ear to me. Does God literally have an ear? No, He does not. But here it is using poetic language and we see, okay, there's a problem. So where's the turning point? Well, You walk through all the first 11 verses and you think, wow, he is in really difficult straits. And then, look at verse 12. But, but you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. Again, this would be a lot more clear if I was reading the entire psalm to you. That's a turning point. He's gone from his distress to now talking about his hope, and his hope is in what God, who God is, and what God does, and he's going to carry that forward all the way to verse twenty-two. So, verse twelve through twenty-two encapsulates the turning point within this poetry, and then verse twenty-three. He has broken my strength in mid-course. He has shortened my days, and you say what? I thought things were on the upswing. I thought things were getting better. It was bad, you were in distress, and then God's here, and He's enthroned, and He's sovereign, He's taking care of you. And now the poet is all the way back to moaning and groaning. And I'm moaning with him, and and then look at verse 25. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain, so forth and so on. And so what we see there, and this is why... Turning point is important because it emphasizes a message. And if if you were to ask me, okay, John, what's the big message of Psalm 102? And it's this, is that my circumstances weigh me down because I am a man of clay feet and a sinner by nature and God is not. He is God. He is sovereign. He is always reigning, even in my life when it doesn't seem like He's in full control. Yes, I'm going to drop down and I'm going to struggle at times with my emotions, with my hope in God. But in the end, the psalmist says, but look, He is God. Direct your attention, direct your heart, direct your focus on Him. Well, the reason why that is so effective is because of those turning points. You see, the psalmist keeps taking us there and turning us around. So we see that, and that's a literary uh, device. And then finally, on poetry, there's the use of falsehood. Falsehood or false statements. It doesn't have to be intentionally, and you say, now hold on just a second, I thought all God's Word is true. It is. All God's Word is true doesn't mean that the people in the Scripture are to always telling the truth, right? Uh, so we've got to be good readers of Scripture. But a great place, uh, uh, example of this is in Job. That, that, that's a perfect example where when we read Job, and the, the, the fascinating thing about the poetry of Job is the nuance. Because we want things black and white, and so we, we get to Job and we go, see, Job's right and his friends, they're always wrong. Well, whoa, whoa, hold on just a second. His, what his friend just said is true. But then what he said there's false. And then what he said five verses in a row, well, those are true. And then there's a half verse that's false. And, oh, that's the nuance of the poetry. That's Intentional. It's showing us that, well, life's not as black and white as we thought. It's not as Job's always right and his friends are always wrong. There's nuances to life. You may recall I said last week is the beauty of wisdom literature, which is where we're getting ready to go. The beauty of of wisdom literature is, is like you read the Proverbs and God says, this is truth. Believe it. This is how the world works. This is how my economy is designed. And we go, yeah, that's right. Perfect. I got it. Thanks so much. As when I was in business, my lawyer used to say, "Is I don't care what the rules are, but tell me what the rules are. Right? And we kind of feel like that. We read Proverbs. Okay, I got it. And then God says, now that you've got it, I'm going to tell you the exceptions. I'm going to start with Job. What? And then I'm going to go to Ecclesiastes, and I'm going to blow your mind. Right? And it happens. That's how God delivers it to us in these poetic forms. And so we're going to be aware that there is falsehood, but it's always with intention. You're a better reader of Job because his friends are not always right. If his friends were always right, you'd glaze over, wouldn't you? And we'd glaze over anyway. But that's another point. All right, next. How are we doing on time? Okay. Next is wisdom literature. Wisdom literature. Now wisdom literature can very well be uh, poetic. It can, in fact be uh, poetic. It's not always. But wisdom, as I said before, the wisdom literature will typically present general truths. General truth. So you're, you're not supposed to dig down and drill down into the, the, the meanings of, for example, the Proverbs. The Proverbs are generally truisms. This is how life works. Accompanied with that is the exceptions. How life doesn't work the way it's supposed to work. And we'll see within wisdom literature, these two play off of one another. All right. So, with the time that I have remaining, and I don't think that I'm going to get through all of this, uh, but actually, this is a, a fairly uh, short topic, and that's prophecy, prophetic literature, and oftentimes, with within um, modern language, uh, we will think of poetry as—I mean—prophecy as as telling the future as forth um, or, or rather as, as foretelling. Uh, but in reality, if you study all of prophetic literature, what you find is there's far more forth-telling than there is foretelling. There's more speaking the truth of God than there is saying such and such will happen in the future. Prophetic literature does, in fact, include that, but that's not its main thrust. It is it involves both narrative and poetry, and it also involves prophetic history. In fact, for example, uh, if, if, if you're reading any of the prophetic books right now, you'll know that oftentimes there is history involved in that. And so we'll find prophetic history, and within that there is a present observation. And this is one of the things that is very helpful. A prophetic book was written within a specific time, a specific era, a specific culture. So if someone has taught you to open up Jeremiah and to see helicopters from the Vietnam era, you were under a really bad teacher. Prophecy is in its own era. It is speaking regarding something. This is not to say that it won't speak to the future, but it is not going to speak in some sort of veiled way that somehow you have to be a modern to somehow interpret it. That is simply not the case. And so, within prophetic literature, we want to read it in its historical context. In its historical context. And you may say, but there's, there's so many different parts of Scripture that will, will deal, for example, Isaiah. John, you've said before that Isaiah is the fifth gospel and there's so much there. You're right. but That doesn't mean that I read Isaiah like it was written in the 21st century. I still have to read it in its historical context. In fact, if I really want to appreciate Isaiah, I have to read it in its historical context. And so what this means is, is that when you're reading some of these more difficult portions of Scripture in prophetic literature, one of the things that you're going to want to ask is, what did this passage say to its original readers? What did this passage say to its original readers? Oftentimes in prophetic literature, that question is never asked. It's skipped over so that we can read all kinds of imaginative things into it. What does this passage say in its present context? What was it meant to do in the context in which it was written? What was the intention? What was this prophet, what was God attempting to say through this prophet in the immediate historical context? Furthermore, Prophetic literature is conditional. Uh, Prophecy uses the thoughts and ideas of this era, but it will introduce certain things as conditional. If this happens, then this. So, for for example, here's here's a great portion. If, If you are a student of Jeremiah, you know this well. Jeremiah will say, "...the Lord has said, if you don't do this, then this." Or we actually see this in the, in the prophets, right? God will send one of the prophets to the king. It says, if, if you don't repent, if you don't turn back to the Lord, X, Y, and Z. That's common within prophetic literature. And so we need to understand that. Now, if you're reading in it in its, in its historical context, then you're going to get it. You're going to be like, okay, I now know what's happening Sometimes it's good to couple with the historical narrative, right? I see what's happening. Here's who the king was. Here's what was saying. I know how vile that king was. I know what was going in the country. And so now I better understand what this is dealing with. And that is the case even if it is dealing with a future matter. So, for example, good students of of your Bibles, you know this. Even in the prophetic passages of Isaiah, pointing to Christ, they're also was often a, at that moment in time meaning as well, dealing with an issue so it had a dual understanding. Something that's going on in this time, something that's pointing to the future. Amos says this in Amos chapter 9, and I've got to hurry. Amos chapter 9, verse 11 and 12. "...in that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches." and raise up its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom. And all the nations who are called by name declares the Lord who does this. And we read that, and we read it in its, in its current context, and you can imagine during that time, the reader would be going, wow, when is, when is this going to happen? This is extraordinary. And then, nothing happened for hundreds of years. And the passage that I just read to you is a direct quote right out of the book of Acts in which the apostles and the Jerusalem council leaders are meeting and they're like, how are we to understand this Gentile thing that's going on that Paul and Barnabas are telling us about? And James, presumably the Lord's brother, says, you know what? Here's what Amos said and he quotes this verse. They go, aha. Now, literal? No. Specific to its historical context. But transferable into the New Testament era? Most certainly with the inclusion. And so, at the time that it was written, this would have been understood as referring to the restoration of Israel and its national prosperity. But that's not all it meant. It was pointing to something greater. Sinclair Ferguson says this. I'm going to read this and then pray for us. Sinclair says, Paying attention to how the apostles applied prophecy, something which they must have learned from the Lord Jesus Himself, is therefore the key to our ability to do the same. And I think that's, a, that's really good. I had a seminary professor say, "Is don't jump out in interpreting Prophecy without the help of the apostles. And I think that's really good advice as well. So that's where we are today. Next week, there's more to come. There are mother more literary characters within our Bible, but that at least gets us going as we've considered narrative and poetry and wisdom literature and prophetic literature and so on. Let me pray for us. Our gracious God in heaven, we do thank you for your word. And we thank you that it is not just an ABC book, but that in your wisdom, you have given it in all of its complex beauty and all of these literary characters that let us regard it highly as it is from you, carried to us by your Holy Spirit. And we pray that you would help us like our fathers before us to be good students of your word. Let us not be ignorant readers, but let us look and study and learn and grow in our understanding of your word, that you may speak to us through your word, that we would continue to grow in godliness. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.